Amen, amen. It is great to see you guys tonight and also Sunday morning. Uh, Wonderful to share this night with you and morning with you. And uh, as we continue today in our study of revival, we've been doing this now. This is week number five. So we started with what is revival, what it is and isn't. And we talked about the goal of revival. Then we talked about what revival looks like in a person and in a people. And then last week we got together and said, all right, so what keeps it away? Because what is it in God's word that he's identified that he says, all right, I will not bless that with my reviving presence. Today, we come to a different question, and the question is, what brings it? And it's kind of an odd question in light of all that we've said in this conversation thus far, if you've been with us, because again and again, what I've said is, we can't bring revival. Like, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do. We cannot, all of us, ascend into the heavenlies and grab God by the arm and twist it behind his back, you know, and then cause him to bend down from heaven to the dying embers of the flame in the heart of his church and to blow on it until it bursts back into flame again. Like, we cannot do that, but here's what we can do. We can go to the Word of God, and we can go to the pages of history, and we can say, okay, what precedes it? Not sometimes, not every once in a while, not even most of the time, but every single time it comes, it's preceded by two things. And the first of which, as Matt just said, is repentance. And so tonight, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about repentance. And I thought about, you know, like, what is the best way to tackle this topic? And I thought, you know, I could systematically deal with it. You know, I can go to a systematic theology book and I can look up repentance and I can find all the different verses on repentance and I can kind of give you a comprehensive systematic understanding of repentance. I could have Bible verses by each of the points that I make. And you know what? That's a really effective way of doing that. Or instead, I could just show it to you. I could take you to what I think is undeniably the greatest prayer of repentance ever prayed and you can feel it and you can see it and you can hear it and you can learn what it is. So we're going to do that today. We're going to go to King David and we're going to go to Psalm 51. And it's a prayer that David prays after a colossal failure. David is famous, guys, for so very many things, but he might at least be most famous for his failures and maybe because of his repentance. I mean, if you remember the story in David's life, David's armies are off fighting the battle for Israel and David stays behind in Jerusalem for the first time ever in his career as king or even as a captain in the army. He doesn't go, which is a failure. He's indicted by by the writer of that book. He stays behind and he commits adultery with the wife of one of his most loyal and mighty and most valiant warriors. When you look at David's mighty men, okay, this guy is listed in there. The woman's grandfather is his most trusted advisor. I mean, it's just crazy upon crazy. He commits adultery with her. He sends her home. He receives a message from her not long thereafter saying that she is now pregnant as a result of that. And he immediately goes into self-protection mode. There is zero repentance in this man's heart at this point in the story. All he can think about is the fallout from this. He's thinking CNN. He's thinking Fox News. He's thinking Twitter. He's thinking I'm going to get blown up like this is going to be scandalous. This is going to be horrific. And so instead of coming forward, owning his sin, repenting and dealing with it at that point, he makes it worse. He calls back this woman's husband from the battlefront, one of his most valiant men, ostensibly to give him a report on the battle. Like they couldn't have sent anyone to do that. He comes in and the whole idea is he wants to get this guy to go home, sleep with his wife, and then think that the baby belongs to him. 
and David's off the hook. And he won't do it, not once but twice. David makes him drink until he's drunk and he still won't do it. And his statement to the king, and think about how this must have sounded to David, is, look, I cannot go home and enjoy the comforts of my home when all my brothers in arms are on the battlefield sleeping outside. No. I know she lives right across the valley, but I'm not going to go to her. Guys, not only had David allowed all of the guys to go sleep in the field and fight the battle without him, and he enjoyed the comforts of his palace, but he's been enjoying the comforts of that man's home. So still in self-protective mode, he pens a note. And it's a note to his general that he seals and he gives to this man and he knows this man is so virtuous that he's not going to read the note. And this man then takes his own death certificate unknowingly to the general of David's army. The note basically says, look, here's what I want you to do with this guy. I want you to put him in the fiercest part of the battle, in the front line of the battle. And then when the battle is raging at its utmost, I want you to have the other guys around him withdraw so that the enemy then kills him. It's exactly what happens. And as soon as it does, David takes this man's wife as his own into his harem, and then he goes on like nothing happened. But the problem is that something happened. (laughs) Something really significant happened. And what happened is that David built a wall between himself and the presence of God, relationally speaking. A wall of pride, a wall of adultery and murder, a wall that he had no intention to deal with. He's covering up. And it's fascinating because God doesn't leave him there, which is really kind of cool. It's not like all of a sudden David wakes up and goes, oh man, I am missing the presence of God so badly. Like that is causing me so much agony that I'm going to go ahead and deal with the national embarrassment and the scandal of coming forward and going, okay, I'm an adulterer. All right, it's even worse than that. It's worse than you thought. I'm also a murderer. I'm a, you know, like, no. God comes to him. I love that. He brings to him the prophet Nathan who undoes him. And the spirit of the Lord works in David's heart. And David then writes this confession, this prayer of repentance, which does what? It removes the barrier between him and what we all of us have been praying for, what we're all of us longing for, what we're all of us asking for. What is revival? It is the presence of God revealed to the world through his people. Look, guys, if we want God, I mean, if we really want him, then we've got to take some walls down. And what David is going to do is he's going to show us how. So Psalm 51, like a lot of the other Psalms, begins with a superscription, which is a fancy word for all of the language that starts before verse 1, okay? But what you need to know about the Psalms is all of that language before verse 1 is actually also a part of the Psalm. In other words, when David sat down to write the Psalm, he wrote this too. And here's what he says. It's so instructive. He says to the choir master, a Psalm of David. Okay, practically speaking, here's what that means. It means that David writes out his confession of this sin, his repentance of adultery and murder that no one knew about other than his general and maybe a few other people, maybe. He writes it out. He signs his name, a Psalm of David. 
And then he marches it down to the temple and he gives it to the choir master and he says, I want you to put this in the book of worship. I want you to add this to the book of Psalms. I want this to be a part of the worship of my people in my generation so I'm getting ready for the interviews and all that. It's going to be a scandal. But that doesn't matter. There's something more important at stake here. And every generation of people who want to seek after God, who realize there are things between them and want to remove them, to know the joy of his presence, to know the power of his presence, to know the beauty of his presence, to know the abundance of his presence. He's like, man, I just like, I want that for everyone so bad that I'm just willing to humiliate myself and out me as king so that they, so that you, so that I can have this. He says to the choir master, a Psalm of David, and then he says, when Nathan the prophet, that's who God sent, remember, went, and it actually says in the Hebrew language, went in to him. It was a penetrating experience. But now notice what he says next. After he, David, had gone in to Bathsheba. Little graphic. Totally awesome. The first thing we learn about repentance from David in this psalm, we get from right here, and that is that repentance is specific. It is absolutely specific. He doesn't go, oh, Lord, forgive me of my sins. You know what they are. Okay, amen. He's calling it out graphically. Listen to what Charles Finney, who was a Presbyterian minister, he was one of the leaders, maybe the most significant leader in the Second Great Awakening back in the 19th century, here in the United States says about repentance. He says, self-examination consists of looking at your life, considering your motives and actions, and calling up your past and seeing its true character. He says, take up your individual sins one by one and look at them, asking forgiveness for each. General confessions of sin are not good enough, he says. Your sins were committed one by one, and as much as you are able, they ought to be reviewed and repented of one by one. I love this. He says, go over them as carefully as a businessman goes over his books. And as often as a sin comes to mind, write it down. Why? So that you've got a record of all of your guilt? So that every time you're kind of feeling down and sort of low on yourself, you know, and you're falling into that spiral of self-loathing that all of us fall into at various times, and you just want to give way to it at times, don't you? It's just like, oh, the heck with it, I'm a turd, you know? And, the, you know, you can just open this book and just, just, oh, man, I can't, oh, I forgot about that one, and oh, I really am just a pile of dirt. No. You don't write it down to guilt yourself. You write it down so that you can remember to then bring it to God and scratch it off the list as though it never happened. Repentance is not the way to misery. It's the way to freedom. So David says, all right, look, I'm going to call it out. Repentance is specific. I'm going to be specific. I wrote this when Nathan the prophet went into me after I went into Bathsheba. And then he says, so here's verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. And here's why. Because I'm guilty. That's why. That's lesson number two, by the way. Repentance is specific, but secondly, it comes with no excuses. It's fantastic. 
David's not shading this. He's not trying to look good. He's not trying to, you know, marginalize it. He's not trying to minimize it. He's not blame shifting in any way, shape, or form. He's not kind of going, hey, let me offload a little of this. He's not coming to God and going, hey, you know, Lord, you remember how this happened, right? Because I was on the roof of my palace, and I walk on the roof of my palace every night at the same time, and everyone, particularly everyone on the other side of the village or on the other side of the valley from me, know that I do that, and this woman's a nine iron from me, and I saw her bathing out there in the open, and that's when I, as the powerful king, sent, that's the language, my guy, to take her. This is all kinds of ugly. Who can resist the king? What is she going to do? But what I love about David is he doesn't do that. He's like, no, no, no. This is 100% me. And the other thing that he doesn't do is he doesn't bring up his otherwise pretty impressive record. I mean, you know, he doesn't come and say, okay, God, so adultery, murder, we'll put that on this side of the scale. But can we talk about Goliath for a minute? Because, I don't know, I was like 16 when I did that. That was cool, wasn't it? I mean, no one in Israel had the faith to face Goliath. Nobody would fight this guy. I show up, I'm not even in the army yet, 16 years old, and I take him down with a sling and a stone, and I rescue the entire nation. Lots of lives saves. I'm feeling the, the scales change a little bit. You know, what about all the battles I won? What about all the virtuous things I've done? What about the way I united the kingdom? What about all of the Psalms? Like, I have written most of the Psalms. Like, that's me. I'm the guy that's the man after your own heart. Remember me? Like, none of it. Why? Because no one enters into the presence of God. And what are we talking about when we talk about revival? It's, it's his presence. That's what we want. It's what we're longing for. No one enters the presence of a perfectly righteous, perfectly holy God who is not himself, herself, absolutely perfect, which dooms the whole of us. But that's the gospel. Jesus comes, the absolutely perfect one. He suffers and dies that he covers over all of our sins. Not some, all. Not in part, but completely. Every one, no matter which one. David's like, I got adultery, I got murder. You know, I mean, if you want to compare. He finds freedom. He's forgiven authentically. He cleanses us fully and wholly that we might, with boldness, enter into the presence of our Father. And so since David isn't perfect, he's like, okay, I need forgiveness. So repentance is specific, he's specific. It doesn't come with excuses, he gives no excuses. But since he's not perfect, he continues. He says, have mercy on me, O God. And then he says, not according to my record, but according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, he says, blot out. It means literally erase my transgressions. He's like, take that book where I wrote everything down very specifically and just blot it out, erase it, forgive it, cover it over, take it away, scratch it all out, use the white out from heaven and get rid of it all. Wash me thoroughly, he says, from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And not just so that I can be forgiven, but so that I can be forgiven so that I can have you again. I've lost you in this. We're not walking in intimate, loving relationship like we were. And I desperately want that back. Unbroken relationship is what every child wants with his father. That's just the way it is. That's why, you know, when our kids mess up, and they're kids, so they mess up. They have our DNA. It's unavoidable. So they mess up, and then we discipline them, right? 
And then what do they need from us? Because it's not just a word of pardon. You're forgiven. And then cold shoulder. No, no, no. That's torture. What they need is you're forgiven. Now bring it in, buddy. Let me give you a hug. Let me give you a kiss on the neck. Let me climb up in bed with you tonight and tell you, hey, look, if God lined up every 10-year-old boy that has ever lived in the history of 10-year-old boys, and he said, Tom, you can choose any 10-year-old boy ever that has ever lived for your son, I want you to know that I would choose you every time. Every single time. Guys, for all of the things that our sin deprives us of. And there are many things. It deprives us of money, depending on the sin. It deprives us of of marriage, depending on the sin. It deprives us of relationships and of reputation and of conscience, of sleep, of health, of freedom. Of all the things that our sin deprive us of, The most precious thing is the presence of the Lord himself. So as you're examining yourself and you're trying to be specific, I think it's a good place to just kind of stop and go, all right, so what am I trading the presence of the Lord for? So David comes to God. He says, okay, so forgive me. Make me clean and and do that so that I might know your presence is the idea And he says in verse 3, for right now, he's saying, all that I know is my transgressions. And the word know matters. It's a significant word in the Bible. It's a word of experience. Adam knew his wife Eve. She became pregnant, had a baby. David knew Bathsheba, that man's wife that we're talking about. She became pregnant, had a baby. David's saying, hey, you know what? Sin has been conceived in me, and I am pregnant with it, and I can't get rid of it like it goes everywhere I go. He says here next, he's like, and my sin is ever before me. It's like when you're 40 weeks, you know? It's ever before you. There's no denying it. I'm obviously pregnant with this, he says. And I can't get out. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. If you want to declare me guilty, I'm guilty. And then he says this, and I love it. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And here again, he's not blame shifting. He's not saying, oh, well, I mean, you know, if you knew my mom, you'd understand this. He's saying, oh, God, this problem is much bigger than I've confessed thus far. It's not just that I've sinned. It's that I'm a sinner. It's not just that I fell. It's that I'm fallen. It's not just that I committed an immoral act. It's that I am an immoral person. It's not just the things that I do. He's saying the things that I do are the reflection of who I actually am. Like I am broken in here. I need you to forgive me for what I've done out here. But I need you to transform me in here. Which brings us to the third lesson in repentance. Repentance is specific. It comes with no excuses. But here's the other thing. It desires to change. Repentance results in a desire to change. The truly repentant person doesn't come and go, hey, you know, I know that I've messed up, and honestly, I feel guilty about this, and so I want you to forgive me, mostly because I feel guilty about this, and I, for my own sake, would like to not feel guilty about this. So my repentance is actually about me, and it isn't repentance. What it is is remorse, and truthfully, I don't feel so bad about it that I'm not going to do this again, so I'll be back. Repentance is when you come to God authentically broken and humbled, And you say, ah, this wrecks me. 
Like I, I look at this and I look at Jesus and I see what this cost him. And I so love him that I'm starting to hate this. And I don't want to do this anymore. I may feel powerless against it. I may need help to get out of it. But I'm not just going to keep caving into it. God, forgive me, yes. But change my heart and empower a new obedience in me. For as David now says, he says, Behold, you, God, delight in truth. Where? In the inward being. And you teach me wisdom. Where? In the secret heart, the part of me that only you can see, Lord. He speaks words of purification. He says, purge me with hyssop, this this fibrous plant that they would dip like in blood and water and sprinkle the crowds with, as ceremonially declaring them clean. He's like, Lord, if you purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And then he says, let me hear joy and gladness, which is kind of a nonsensical statement because you can't really hear an emotional state, but here's what you can hear. You can hear a word of pardon that produces an emotional state. You can feel and and hear a word of of presence. Hey, you know, if I could choose like any 54-year-old guy like on the entire planet, uh, Tom, I just, and I can, want you to know that um, I've chosen you. There's joy in that. There's gladness in that. It's amazing. He says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. What is that? Where is your bones? I mean, like if you look at your arm, where's your humerus? It's in the middle of it, right? The idea is that the bones, it represents your emotional state. It represents your psyche in this case. He's saying, that which is at the very center of me, you've broken. But let them rejoice. Heal me. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out, again, erase all of my iniquities so that your face might be no longer hidden from me because your face is what I want now more than anything else. And then I love this. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. All right, the reason that's so cool is that that's the same word when you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and you look at the creation account in the book of Genesis that God uses in which God creates all things out of nothing. What is David saying? He's saying, listen, create in me a clean heart, O God, and by the way, you're going to have to do it out of nothing because I don't have any substance to give to you that you can then form and mold into it. I'm too ruined. But you... You can create an entirely new heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, one that seeks to obey you. Cast me not away from you, here it is, presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me, because what I'm after in repentance, Lord, is you. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit, which brings us to our last lesson in repentance Repentance is specific. It doesn't come with excuses. It results in a desire to change. But then lastly, it makes us useful to God. It's like he gathers us up, wrecked as we are. He forgives us. He heals us. He embraces us. He kisses us. He climbs up in bed with us and he tells us, you know, I could have chosen anyone, but I chose you. He washes and cleans us. He creates a new heart and even desire to obey him in us. And then he repurposes us. 
And what's fascinating is he takes all of our broken pieces and he repackages them into something useful, into something beautiful. Listen, David says in verse 13, do all this for me and then what am I going to do? For then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Why? Because Lord, here's what I'm planning to do with this psalm. It's going to be awesome, I think. I'm going to take it down to the temple and then I'm going to give it to the choir master and I'm going to tell him to publish it. And I'm going to call my PR guys because, you know, it's going to create quite the storm. But but I'm going to teach, I'm going to teach transgressors your way. And sinners, through this, through my failure and my being found again by you, through this example of repentance, we'll return to you. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. So there's the other one. It's murder. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, he says, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, or I'd do that. He says, the sacrifices of God are what? They are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, as opposed to a heart that is proud, as opposed to a heart that is self-protective, as opposed to a heart that wants to quickly cover everything up and deny everything and that values me and mine and my reputation and how I look and how I appear and how this, that, and the other thing over the presence of God. He's like, no, 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 forget that. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. And then his thoughts move from himself to the people that he is the king of. He wants revival for everybody. That's why he's going to publish it. And he prays for the people. He says, do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The idea being, then we will know your presence. You'll revive us. So repentance is specific. Repentance does not come with excuses. Repentance results in a desire to change. It's a badge of authenticity. And it repurposes us. It it makes us useful. It restores us to usefulness. So here's the action point that I want to give you guys. Here's what I want to challenge you to do, okay? Last week on day three of our personal worship, you might have noticed an attachment. If you didn't, tomorrow or Monday, when you open your personal worship, you'll see an attachment, and it's a document by Charles Finney on repentance. And it is awesome and incredibly challenging. It really is. Like he walks it through. He's like, all right, sins of omission. Those are things that you should have done, but you didn't. He's like, all right, sins of commission. Those are things that you did that you shouldn't have. He gives us 13 separate categories of each by which to examine our hearts, by which to look for the things that that stand between us and the Lord on a relational level by which to write things down specifically, not so that we can beat ourselves up over how crummy we are, but so that we can be relieved, so that we can be ushered into the presence of the Lord. And what I want to challenge you to do is to do that. 
Take some time this week, day by day, and engage in that journey. Because when you look through God's word in the pages of church history, look, you discover you can't bring revival. I can't do it. We can't do it. We just can't. But if you look for what always precedes it, it starts right here. Repentance brings revival. All right, let's pray together. Father, Lord, we long for your presence and where we fail to do that. God, by your spirit, (laughs) make us to long. Lord, we repent of all the ways that we value other things, most especially ourselves and our pride and our reputation and whatever, above you and above your presence. God, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts, a work of honesty, a work of humility, a work of reordering of loves and of values, a work in which we see and sense, get a glimpse of your beauty. We taste as we sang today, and we want more, so much more that we're willing to forsake anything to have you. Let us have the honest conversations, God, with you, and if helpful, then with each other. Your word comes and says, confess your sins to one another, that we might preach the gospel to each other, lead each other to Jesus, and in doing so to freedom. Free your people from the things, Lord, that we have done. Free us, God, that we might know you in your fullness. And then come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.